I'm a big fan of personality tests. Perhaps you are too. It seems that every few months there is a new personality test that is all the rage on the internet or being used in the business world in some way. Now, in case you were wondering, on the Myers-Briggs, I am an INTJ. And on the Enneagram, I am a one with a two wing. If if you have no idea what I'm talking about, it's okay. Your neighbor probably knows. Ask them after the service, or you can come find me after the service. I'll be happy to explain. But personality tests are fun. They teach us a little bit about ourselves. They explain what's unique, how we see the world, how we live in the world. And Christians have personality tests of their own. In fact, if you uh, join us for the vocations retreat, uh, you will take a spiritual gifts inventory, a test that's designed to help teach you about your spiritual gifts. Perhaps, though, the oldest personality test for Christians is right here in Luke chapter 10. Are you a Mary or are you a Martha? You know, are are you a Mary? Are, Are you someone who's a quiet listener? who pays attention to Jesus, who listens to his word? Or or are you a Martha? Are you a hard worker? Are you a person who is getting stuff done? You know, a person who is wanting to serve all the time? The churches that I grew up in used to talk this way. You know, they used to say, uh, are you Mary, are you Martha? And sometimes, you know, if you were like Martha, uh, you'd be encouraged to be more like Mary. Or sometimes the opposite, too, you know. If you're very Mary-like, then you'd be encouraged to be more like Martha. But is this really the best way to understand this passage from Luke 10? I mean, what if it's not Mary or Martha? What if it's a both and? What if both these women have something to teach us about discipleship? Let me show you what I mean. If you have your Bibles with me, open them up to Luke chapter 10. We're going to spend a little bit of time here on this very short story. It's short, but there is a lot of theology that is densely packed here. Luke uses a lot of unique words that don't really appear anywhere else in his gospel. And whenever we read a gospel passage, it's important to begin with this question. Where is Jesus? The Gospels are stories about Jesus, so we have to ask, where is he? What is he doing? Well, in verse 38, we're told that Jesus has entered a village. And specifically, he has been welcomed into the home of a woman named Martha. According to the Gospel of John, this village is called Bethany, but we're not told anything about this village by Luke. Jesus has many other Uh, important moments in Bethany. But here, uh, he has entered the home of Martha, presumably for the first time. And sitting at Jesus' feet is Martha's sister, Mary. We know nothing about Mary, except that she's sitting at Jesus' feet and she is listening to his teaching, to his word, to his logos, Mary is a disciple, and this would not have been typical in the ancient world. When you sit at a rabbi's feet, you you want to learn from them. 
You want to form your life like theirs. But women in the first century were not allowed to sit at the feet of rabbis. That was something that was only for men. And yet here we have Jesus allowing this woman to sit at his feet, to learn from him, to learn from his words. And in this way, Mary gives us an important example. An example of what it means to be a disciple. The posture that each one of us need to attentively listen to the words of Jesus. I mean, we believe that Jesus was the smartest human that ever lived. And what he has to teach us is the way that we should order our lives. Mary knows this. And so Mary is focused on the words of her rabbi. She is sitting at his feet and paying attention. But Mary is neglecting her responsibilities. She is a Jewish woman, after all. And Jewish women in the first century were required to live the role of hostess. Anytime you had a guest that came into your home, it was the woman's job to make sure that guest felt welcome, that that guest was served well, that the guest had the right food or the right comforts. Martha is a good Jewish woman. She is living into her role. In verse 40, we're told that she is working hard. But that's not all we're told. It's great. Luke gives us a little editorial comment. He says that Martha is distracted by her much serving. Now, there's nothing wrong with working hard. Nothing wrong with serving. After all, we're Americans, right? Americans work hard. That's what we do. That's a good thing. Except when we become distracted. Except when in all of our work, we start paying attention to the wrong things. And we lose what really matters. And Martha is not just distracted. She's beginning to feel resentful. I mean, why should she have to do all this hard work when her sister is sitting there like a lazy bum doing nothing? We learn a lot about Martha from what comes next. She is not a woman who's going to sit there and take it quietly. She is a woman who is going to tell you what she thinks. She decides to do something about it. And in verse 40, she says, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. I think I've said that to my parents once or twice. Maybe you've heard that from your own children or grandchildren. We get it. Martha's request is completely reasonable. Nobody wants to do all the work by themselves, especially if there's someone there who's just sitting around, someone who can help. Listen to how Jesus responds. Martha, Martha. I mean, right there from the very beginning, we can hear the compassion of Jesus. This is not a rebuke. This is not a moment of anger. Jesus understands her complaint. Jesus gets it. Martha, Martha. You are anxious and troubled about many things. 
There's nothing wrong with Martha's request. Working hard is a good thing. Wanting help is a good thing. Except when you're distracted by all your serving. And when you're distracted by your serving, then you become anxious. You become troubled. Literally, it's like Martha's all torn up. She's confused. She doesn't know what to do. She is anxious. Martha, Martha, you are anxious and you are troubled by many things. One thing is necessary. See, the problem with anxiety is that when we're anxious, we miss out on the important things. We take things that are not really important and we elevate them and we make them the most important thing. And then we take the things that are actually important, the things that matter, the things that are essential, and we neglect them. We devalue them. We forget about them. I've done that. Perhaps you have too. When you get caught up in your work, distracted by all the things you have to do, anxious about whether it's going to get done, and you begin to focus on things that are unimportant. Jesus continues in verse 42. Listen to what he says. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. And this is truly remarkable. What began as Martha's simple request for help has resulted in Jesus commending Mary. Yes, Martha needs Mary's help, but in a way that she doesn't totally understand. Martha has something to learn from Mary, and Jesus knows it. Martha, Martha, you are anxious and you are troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, and it will not be taken away from her. So the question for us this morning is, what is that good portion? What is that thing that Mary has that Martha has lost? How should we interpret these words of Jesus in verses 41 through 42? Well, I think there are two ways you can look at it. First, on a basic level, Martha has forgotten about the purpose of hospitality. In the ancient world, hospitality was one of the key virtues in Judaism. It was something that Jewish people were expected to do. I mean, we've got to remember, this passage in Luke 10 follows after the Good Samaritan, which was preached about last week, a passage all about welcoming strangers, welcoming enemies. Yes, it's important to warmly welcome guests with acts of service, but it's even more important to listen to them, to pay attention to those who you welcome. If you're too busy serving your guests, you'll never take the time to get to know them, to learn from them. And this, friends, is a really important point because we live in a culture that is increasingly inhospitable. We live in a world that is suspicious of strangers, of people who don't look like us. And if we welcome strangers at all, we want it to be on our terms. We want strangers to conform to our expectations. And that's why many of us choose to not be hospitable. I mean, after all, it's a lot easier to sit at home in front of the TV with Netflix 
you know, and your favorite food and not welcome people who are different from you. Jesus is raising the bar for us about what hospitality means. We're not only called to love and serve strangers, we are called to listen to them, to pay attention to them. This is what true hospitality looks like. And this is what Martha has forgotten. But second, there is another, more profound way to read this passage. A reading that aligns with much of church history. See, for the first 1,000 years of the church, biblical scholars and theologians pretty much unanimously agree that Martha and Mary represent two ways of living the Christian life. Martha is the active life. And Mary is the contemplative life. Martha is hard at work in her home and in the world. She loves our Lord Jesus through concrete acts of service. Martha's the person you want on your team. And many of us, in similar ways, are like Martha. We are active Christians. We love our Lord Jesus by working for the good of our neighbor, for the good of our community. We give our time and our talent and our treasure for the advancement of the kingdom. Active Christians are the people at soup kitchens, the people serving at homeless shelters, the people who are working behind the scenes at events, or the people who are serving in student ministry and children's ministry. We need Marthas. We need active Christians. And we also need Marys, Christians who live the contemplative life. Mary is devoted to Jesus, and she expresses her love by listening to his word, by paying attention, by sitting at his feet. Mary takes the words of Jesus and hides them away into her heart. She is seeking to be more like him. And there are Christians who are contemplatives like Mary today. The contemplatives are the prayer warriors. They're the people you turn to when things get hard. The people you can rely on to intercede on your behalf. Contemplatives are people like me who study the word of God and preach and proclaim and teach the gospel. Contemplatives devote themselves wholeheartedly to Jesus. They are single-minded. We need contemplatives like Mary. Martha, Mary, the active life, the contemplative life. And if we read Luke 10 with the early church, then it's pretty clear that Jesus is commending the contemplative life. He is commending Mary. The active life is good. Serving is good. But the contemplative life is better. That, friends, is the good portion which will not pass away. After all, in eternity, when we meet our Lord face to face, our actions, our good works, they will fade away. But prayer, being with Jesus, that's forever. That's what all of us are called to. Now, in some churches, contemplative is a bad word. I saw it on some of y'all's faces. As soon as I said it, there was, there was some uh, suspicion or even disgust. 
You know, what is Father Brian talking about using that word? But this is a huge mistake. If you are suspicious of that word, it's probably because you, like many of us, have been shaped by the Enlightenment. We've been taught that our faith is something rational, something you think really hard about. And most of the modern Western church has misunderstood what contemplation means and why it's so important. We need to recover this idea. When we think of contemplation, most of us think of a monk or a nun who is off in a monastery. Or we think of someone who, you know, is praying with their Bibles by themselves. But here's a simple definition for contemplation. Contemplation is a life of prayer. It is a person of prayer. And we are all called to be people of prayer. Jesus teaches time and time again in the Gospels how to pray. He models that life of prayer for us. And prayer is spoken of all through Holy Scripture as one of the things disciples do. Contemplative people are people who are able to prayerfully rest in the presence of God. They are able to receive the grace and mercy of God because they know that they are loved, not because of what they do, but because of who they are. They know that their life and identity is defined not by their work, but by their baptism, by what our Lord Jesus has done for them. And this, friends, is probably one of the greatest traps of the Christian life. When we're distracted by our work, when we're working hard, when we're anxious, we start to think that Jesus loves us for what we do rather than for who we are, for who he has made us to be. Mary knows she is justified by faith, not by works. This is why Jesus commends her. The contemplative life is a life of prayer, and all of us are called to that kind of life. See, if we read Luke 10 as a personality test, as you know, two different ways of being Christian, active and contemplative, then we tend to oppose them. We tend to think that some people are contemplatives and some people are active and never the two shall meet. But here's the truth, friends. All Christians, all of us gathered here, you, me, we are all called to be contemplatives in action. To be people at work in the world, but also sustaining a life of prayer. All of us have a calling. All of us have work to do out in the world. And amidst that calling, amidst that work, we are called to continue to pray. That is what discipleship looks like. Esther DeWall, a uh, contemporary spiritual writer, says it this way. Prayer is the anchor that brings inner strength to my daily activity. And my daily activity informs that prayer and anchors it in the reality of today. You can't do your kingdom work in the world without prayer. It is the fuel in our Christian lives. Thomas Merton, who was a famous 20th century Cistercian in Kentucky, he uses this example, which I really like. Um, 
Picture a stream that is flowing in the woods. And the stream flows and the water gives life to everything around it. And every stream has a source, has a place where the water originates, a spring. And the spring bubbles up from underground and flows into the stream. But if that stream is disconnected from the spring, if it's cut off from its source, what happens? Well, that stream begins to pool. And pooled water gets infested with mosquitoes and crocodiles and all kinds of creatures that bring death. Friends, a lot of our spiritual lives are pulled up streams. A lot of our lives with God are infested with mosquitoes. They're not giving life to anyone, they're giving death. And it's because we do not pray. It's because we are cut off from the Holy Spirit, the wellspring of life. The Holy Spirit that is living and active in each one of us. But if we're distracted by our work, if we're anxious, if we're troubled, we will ignore that spirit. We won't listen. We won't pay attention to his word. Aren't you glad that Jesus talks about anxiety in his word? I mean, we live in an anxious world. I am anxious. And I know that you are too. And Jesus has an answer for anxiety. Prayer. He wants to heal us of our frantic busyness. And so we need to be like Mary. We need to pray. Christians have an answer for our anxious world. But I'm afraid that too often you and I are no different than the world. We're just as anxious as the rest of the world, just as afraid, just as troubled, just as distracted. But Jesus is calling us to live a very different kind of life. He is calling us to an active life rooted in contemplation, to be contemplatives in action, to be a non-anxious presence in the world. And this way of life, friends, this way of following Jesus, this is our most powerful witness to the world. If you're a person who cares about evangelism, who wants to reach others for Christ, then the greatest witness you have is that non-anxious presence. It's that life of prayer. St. Sirgis of Serov who was a 18th century Russian Orthodox monk said this. He said, acquire the spirit of peace and thousands around you will be saved. What would it be like if Christians were unafraid? What if we lived lives of quiet confidence in the love of God and his grace, able to love others without being distracted or anxious? This kind of life is not easy. It's quite difficult. It takes practice. It takes discipline. It takes using tools like the Book of Common Prayer. But friends, you can become a better prayer. You can be a more contemplative person. It takes support from fellow disciples, from pastors, from spiritual directors. But the most important thing we need is grace. Grace. 
Everything that we have has already been given to us. Everything that we need for our life of prayer is already within us. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is alive in you and me. Are you paying attention? Are you listening to the spirit of God? Sitting at the feet of God? Sitting at his word? Or are you like Martha? Are you busy and distracted? Are you misplacing your priorities and ignoring the Holy Spirit that is in you? Come Holy Spirit, give us grace to pray. Teach us what it looks like to live in the world, to be prayerful in our everyday lives so that we may be witnesses to your glory for a very anxious world. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.